The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn to 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to Corinth, chapter 1. I actually want to consider with you today chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, but the verses in the second half of chapter 1 really lead up to and open the door to chapter 2. Imagine Paul the missionary going to proclaim the gospel in one of the most sophisticated cities of the ancient world. Corinth was a trade center, inheritor of the great culture of Greece, which included philosophy and rhetoric and speech-making. There were people who were absolute experts in these fields. You could be entertained, literally, by going to hear the philosophers debate and see who was the most eloquent speaker, who had the most flowery vocabulary or presented the newest ideas. That's the atmosphere into which Paul brought the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to how he addresses the church of Christ that was at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God 
with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God abides forever. You know of Martin Luther, the biblical theologian, the bold reformer, even the hymn writer. How many of you ever think of Martin Luther, the furniture mover? As a matter of fact, one of the most important things he ever did was move furniture. Luther's reforms in the church of his day completely changed sanctuaries that were inherited by Reformation churches by taking what was called an altar on which the sacrifice of the Mass had been celebrated and Christ was visibly being presented as being killed or sacrificed as the Lamb of God over and over again, an unbiblical Mass. And Luther said, let there be no more altar. We don't have an altar. We have a communion table. And Luther said, let there be a pulpit. And don't put that pulpit way over at the side somewhere. Put it out front and center because the central act of the Christian church will be the preaching of the inspired and infallible Word of God. I had the privilege to work with our architect when this pulpit was designed. They didn't let me design anything else in the building, but as kind of a would-be architect all my life, I said, I want to be involved in that pulpit. And I was. I remember an afternoon sitting for a couple hours with the architect and how high this piece is, is the height I asked for, the slope of this desk is what I asked for, the, the wine glass below, did you ever know that was called a wine glass down there beneath my feet? And I had the thrill of seeing it be reproduced and plans and then built. Some of you know we had speakers here for a conference in October and several nationally known speakers were really lusting if Christian speakers can lust. They were lusting over this pulpit. Two of them declared they were going to take it home with them. They didn't do it because if anybody's taking it anywhere, it's going to be me. <laughs> My home where we've lived in Lidditz for a year and a half is across the street from a nearly completed three-story apartment building with 50 apartments with balconies looking out in our direction. And I've got it all figured out. The group of high school boys are going to come and we're going to take this out of here and put it in my front yard so I can preach to the apartment building. So if it's not here next week, you'll know where to look. Luther made the pulpit central, and so did the Reformation, of course. Preaching became the prime activity of the Christian church through the Reformation. But if I ask the question today in many churches that are inheritors of the formal Reformation. What is preaching? A lot of people would be unable to answer. Oh, preaching. Don't preach at me. And that's when people are talking to you in a moralistic tone that you don't like because it's probably criticizing something you're doing. Oh, preaching. That's that little talk the pastor has, which is usually too long 
and in which he bores everybody and I get on my phone and get connected with folks surreptitiously. The pastor can't see up there who's on the phone and who isn't. Ha! I've been watching you for a long time. Preaching has been trivialized in many places to become a little 15-minute glib inspiring talk delivered by somebody who probably ought to be a TV talk show host replete with jokes and stories to keep it alive and maybe give people a little bit of inspiration to pass on into their week. Maybe you even get some scripture read. Quite often the scripture is read and then what follows has nothing to do with the scripture that was read. Years ago here, a visitor, this would have been in our old sanctuary days, I remember a visitor coming, a man I'd never seen before, and he talked to me at the door. And I always remember what he said, Pastor, this is the first time in a long while when I heard a preacher fire live ammunition instead of blanks. I like that, not so much as a selfish compliment, but because I think he exactly described what we try to do. Fire the live ammunition of the Word of God, not blanks. Preaching is not so much a learned craft or a vocational skill that you take, you know, preaching 101 and preaching 102, and and then you know how to preach. Different folks have said to me, well, in your retirement, you could go to one of the seminaries in the Philadelphia area and teach homiletics. Homiletics is is the work of developing sermons. I think I can now admit this because I won't be thrown out. I never took homiletics. I never did. I wouldn't know how to teach it because I never took it. But, you know, it's just not something that's like fixing a car or carving a turkey or whatever. You know, give somebody a bunch of lessons and ABC you know how to preach. Preaching eludes human definition and human analysis, certainly eludes human control or mastery. That's proved every time someone who is a preacher knows that he comes to the Sunday morning and he's had a pretty good week and not too many distractions, so he's really had his sermon preparation down pat and he's got the wonderful set of notes and He goes to the pulpit striding confidently in all ready to hit a tremendous home run right over the balcony and out into the the left field wall. Guess what? That will be the most defeatist sermon that man ever preaches. God has taught me that lesson more times than once. But let me have the terrible week when distractions are rife, meetings are happening about every two hours, there's family issues going on or something and preparation time is cut way down and I come to the pulpit through this robe room door down here where we pastors pray together before we come in and I literally almost fall on my face and say, oh God, I've got nothing. Please give this people something from me and this poor preparation. And that's the Sunday you want to be there because that's the Sunday that God speaks. It's amazing. Human mastery never takes a complete hold of preaching, nor does our analysis really tell what it is. It's a, it's a divine activity, is all I can tell you. God's involved, and there's mystery at the heart of it. In Ephesians 3, Paul 
wrote there to the church of Ephesus, unto me the least of all the saints, the least, and he meant it, the least. He wasn't one of the original 12. He felt like somebody who had been cobbled on to the tail end of the apostles' train. The least of the saints to me is given grace that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul called himself a steward of the mysteries of God. And he emphasized, as we've already heard him in this text today, the foolishness of preaching. You see, he was seeing himself, and he was a pretty good speaker and debater in his own right. He was putting himself down a bit unnecessarily. But he was saying, look, I'm up against the greatest orators in the known world here in in Greece when I came to you, Corinthians. You know what great stylists what great spokesmen those men were that, I, that stood in the marketplace and talked about the theories of Plato and Aristotle and I don't know who. I was a fool compared to them, he said. But it's God's foolishness. And God's foolishness is greater than the so-called wisdom of men. When I departed from my Maryland congregation a little over 24 years ago, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 was my departure text that last Sunday as I tried to tell them many of the things I'm trying to tell you today. And I came here, rolled in with a U-Haul truck of books to be unloaded, started my week, set up. Foolishly, I thought, well, I can get the office set up and preach that first Sunday. And Wednesday, I was in the midst of getting the office arranged. There, actually, in Maryland, I had a a longer deadline on getting my title and things. The, the title went in the Baltimore Sun, and they didn't require it until Thursday afternoon. But somewhere around Wednesday afternoon, I said to Betsy Graver, the office secretary, well, Betsy, when do you want to have service information for the bulletin? And without missing a beat, Betsy said, yesterday. <laughs> I realized Westminster had some different deadlines. And I realized, too, that doing a new sermon for that Sunday wouldn't be that advisable. So I thought, why could I not direct many of the same thoughts that I left with folks in Maryland to folks here? And now I'm doing it again. It's not laziness. It's the fact that this text is a prime text for the things that I hope to say to you today on this last opportunity to speak as pastor here. It's, it's the charter text, I think, of preaching. And Paul first does something here in 2.2 in where he announces that there is a God-anointed singular subject for preaching. I determined not to know anything among you except there is something he determined to know, this one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said the Jews are already against that idea. They think crucifixion is a horror to discuss, and the Greeks think it's undignified. But that's my subject, and it's the only subject I could have. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this first point today because really, if you've been with us, I've been on this particular point for 13 weeks, talking to you about prominent texts that display who Jesus Christ was and is in the pages of Scripture. That singular subject has been before us. Christ, the prominent subject, the preeminent subject of the whole Bible, the Son of God, virgin-born, descended to earth, 
living among us in obscurity for many years and then stepping forward as the prophet of God, the Messiah of God, the miracle worker, going to a cross. His own disciples denied him and said, don't do this, Lord. No, no, not you. You don't understand. This is not what Messiah does. Jesus said, this is what Messiah does. The scripture says he set his face like a flint in determination to go to the cross, which he did, of course, and was raised from the dead. We went over that these past dozen weeks. This singular subject, the central act of importance in the entire history of the world. Romans 3, 23 to 26 summarizes this vital point in just a couple sentences. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and and we are justified freely by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith so God might be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is telling you that the greatest person in the Bible is Jesus, the Son of God, The greatest act in the Bible was his offering himself on the cross and being raised by the power of God. And you can find this as literally the crossroads of everything that the Bible has to say, no matter what book you're preaching from. If you're not preaching about the greatest person leading to the greatest act, when you're in Genesis or Exodus or Psalms or Isaiah or Luke or Ezekiel or Thessalonians or Revelation... All roads in the Bible lead to Christ and Him crucified. I've left something for the individual who will succeed me here as senior pastor. The associates are already aware of it. When we dedicated this sanctuary, what is it now? I guess 12 plus years ago, I went to a store and had this made. It's a little tiny. It's about the size of my thumb or a little bigger. little plaque. You're welcome to come see it sometime, not right now, but you could come look at it if you want to. It's just a little plaque that has words inscribed on it. It says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Quote of John 12, 21. It's been glued to this pulpit. About a year ago, I noticed it was actually coming loose. And I actually thought about, boy, I'm not going to be here more than another year or so. I better do something about that. Guess what I used? Gorilla glue. It's on here with Gorilla Glue. And I hope it's going to endure through a couple more pastors to see this and be reminded that their task in this pulpit is to show you Jesus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the singular subject of real preaching. But in second place, I want to move to verses 3 and 4 here. For as Westminster's congregation is praying right now in A committee is hard at work trying to identify who your next primary preacher will be. You need to be aware of another condition to look for and to pray about in that person coming. And it should be that you're praying for a person who will do what Paul says he did in coming to them. When I first came to you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but demonstration of the Spirit and power. Here, I think, as a second point, is God's 
tells us God's anointed preaching trembles with a singular kind of fear. I don't know how many of you are scared to death of speaking in public, but they tell us that's the most common prevalent fear. It's worse than the fear of heights, the fear of speaking before a crowd. People say to me all the time, aren't you afraid to be up there in that pulpit speaking to all those people? I have to honestly tell you, no, you don't cause me a tremble. I don't know why. I wasn't given that fear gene for some reason. Make it a whole stadium of people, I'll happily talk to them. I'm just not afraid of you. But I'm not being asked to tremble before you. I'm being asked to tremble before a tremendous responsibility that preaching the Word of God calls for. Think of a surgeon, a man or woman with a lot of training, who finally gets to, let's say, be a cardiac surgeon. And there they are, that first time, they're the the prime surgeon, not just the helper anymore. And they're holding a beating human heart in their hand, knowing it needs some kind of repair or something. What an unbelievable responsibility. Now there, I'd be afraid. I would be scared to death, with good reason, of course. I'm not a physician. What a responsibility to know you hold a person's life in your hands. But you know what? That's exactly what I do every Sunday. It's not my power, my wisdom, my training that is responsible for your soul, your eternal destiny, but through what I say from the Word of God, God, the Spirit of God, does His work in you, giving you a new spirit, a new mind, an awakening to things of eternal life. And if someone doesn't preach to you, you'll never hear those things, and they may never know the truths of eternity. And I've got a place in that chain of responsibility. It leaves me breathless that I might mess it up. And yet I'm thankful that I know that God, by his spirit, only has me in his hand as a conduit of what he wants to do. But I will be held to account for being faithful to the word of God. And that, boy, you better think hard about that. That makes me think back of decades 45 years now of being a pastor continuously in six different congregations. What a responsibility. Have I messed up? Only eternity will say. But how you help me, even today, as we were greeting folks after the first service and so many of you told of things God has done in your life, thank you. You let me know that I was of some good. But I ultimately know that whatever effect God did in your life, it wasn't me. George Whitfield is a name you probably know, one of the most gifted preachers in the last 300 years. He was mesmerizing. Whitfield went back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean, 13 trips, pre-revolutionary, when crossing the ocean was a dangerous venture that took at least a month. And he preached all up and down the Atlantic coast of the United States and as well as in Britain. And when he was rumored Whitfield's going to be in New Jersey or Philadelphia, people could see the dust clouds as the horses ran down the road. People wanted to hear Whitfield. This was a man so used of God, it was astonishing. And yet, one of the things to know about him that you can learn from his journals is he was totally uncomfortable with people's praise. 
They'd come and say, oh, Dr. Whitfield, you are so wonderful. And he would just walk away because he couldn't listen to that kind of thing. He didn't even know how to listen to someone saying, thank you, complimenting his sermon. A 20th century preacher who's been a model for me now with the Lord for 20 or 30 years, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, your reflection quote in your bulletin this morning is from him. You want to know what he thinks about preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welshman who preached mostly in London. People heard him and they said, astonishing. I met God for the first time. But Lloyd-Jones, for all his power in the pulpit, once said, and he meant it, I would not even cross the street to hear myself preach. You know, that's what a preacher has to be able to say. Otherwise, somehow ego and pride are going to crowd in and you're going to think it's you doing it when it isn't at all. Preachers who God really uses know in all sincerity that they are nothing. I asked Johanna to sing that song, No Power of My Own. I have none. I have none. I know not why God would use my preaching. I just know the power is his, and I just stand there and let him work. I've never met another fine preacher, John Piper. Many of you know the name of Dr. Piper, now retired a Baptist, good man. Dr. Piper and I share a near identical experience of call to the ministry, even though we don't know each other. He tells about it in a book of his. In 1966, he was at Wheaton College, a student, in a pre-med program. He was sick in the infirmary. So he was listening on the campus radio station to the speaker in the chapel that day, who happened to be Dr. Harold Ockengay, The name may not be meaningful to a lot of you, but one of the great preachers of the 20th century. Akengay was there at Wheaton and preaching that day. Piper said, while I listened to Dr. Akengay preach, the whole direction of my life was permanently changed. My heart was almost bursting with longing to know and handle the word of God like that man did. And he said, two days later, I dropped my pre-med major and set my face to become the best preacher God could use me and do in me. He said, God's call to the pulpit still rings in my heart as clearly 50 years later as it did then. I identify with that so much because I had almost the exact same experience. Dr. Akengay, a man of formidable intellect and pulpit powers, came to Houghton College, where I was, three years later in 1969. Now, Christian college students are a tough audience. Let me tell you, they think they know everything. They're jaded, they're cynical, and I can tell you what it was like to be in chapel four days a week, required attendance at Houghton College. You would sit there, you have a math test next period, you're working on your math. Your Time Magazine just came, you're reading your Time Magazine up in front of your face as a boring missionary speaking. Not all missionaries are boring, of course, but to the student, they are. And students were just awful in the way they treated speakers. Dr. Ockengay came, and I looked around me. No one was reading anything. Everyone was looking and listening in dead silence as this man expounded God's word and did it so well that he captured my imagination as he captured Piper's a few years before. And I said to myself, not out loud, of course, but... 
what I thought was, I want to discover if somehow God could use me to speak from Scripture even one-tenth as well as that man. Now you might say that sounds kind of unworthy that you just wanted to imitate a human speaker. But I can defend myself and say what we really were doing there was tasting so deeply of God from a man who was so clear and transparent a conduit of God from his word that we were hearing a man under divine compulsion. A man in whose abilities preaching was what Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire. I had never heard the like, and I seldom have since. But in my memory, I think I'm always trying to say logic on fire. That's what God has called me to convey to a human audience. Thirdly today, last point, in verses 4 and 5 here of 1 Corinthians 2, what does Paul mean when he says, my message and preaching were not with wise persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power? Where do you get this Spirit's power? Can you buy it? Can you practice it? Can you plead for it? How does it come? Well, I'm at the end of 45 years of looking for it, and I can't exactly tell you except that you empty yourself as much as you can and you plead with God to speak as you cannot possibly do. True preaching is a divine power transfer from a biblical text to and through a man to the people of God. And I have a very simple illustration. It's winter. We haven't had that bad a winter. Not by my standards, we haven't had that bad a winter. But, and I haven't got to use my battery cables for anybody this winter. Maybe you have. But this is the time, of course, when dead batteries show up, right? You have a good cold snap and you go out and your car doesn't start. And most of you know what you have to do. Get somebody with cables and you take those alligator clamps and you put them on the battery that's good and you put the other ends. Make sure you get the right one on the right terminal or you're in trouble. Put it on the other battery that's no good and you start a car. You've got an energy transfer, right? That's what preaching is. The energy is in the Word of God by the Holy Spirit who once gave it. And the all-potent Word of God, first of all, must, I have learned, take hold of the preacher and jolt the preacher alive until that text takes possession of him, grips him, and he knows that he might as well be handcuffed to the text until he gets to tell what he hears the text saying. A power transfer. What am I in that? I'm a battery cable. Pretty inglorious thing to be. I don't have anything to do with the power. The power simply flows through. Because the scripture presents God's own revelation of himself in every page, in every book. And we seek to let that text be studied, be understood, until it owns us. And then we stand up and tell you the theme that has taken ownership of us. Hopefully God, by his Spirit, is conducting his strength, his power, by the Spirit to you as you hear it. A lot of things can get in the way of that happening. One is that preachers, just as much as any other human being, can be lazy. It takes work to work a text until it takes ownership of you. Let me tell you, 
When I first came out of seminary, I think I always, I was happily a small church and I didn't have a lot of committees to go to or extra activities, small country church. And I could spend 15 or sometimes even 20 hours on a sermon, half, half a works, work week. That took discipline. I had to get up. Nobody was forcing me to get up in the morning and go get my Greek New Testament out and study the words and analyze the text and work through the commentaries and do all that. I had to do it by discipline of God reminding me that I dare not go in the pulpit without doing the work. And it's easy in the ministry to do all kinds of other things. There's a lot of other things. You, maybe you love to counsel, so you, you gather people around you who need counseling and give them a weekly appointment, and you can spend lots of hours counseling. People are happy if you do it. You can go to meetings. You can go to community activities. You can do all kinds of things that are, in and of themselves, good things. But the problem is they're not your preeminent work. Your preeminent work is to preach. Now that I've been doing it for a while, you might say, well, do you still spend 15 or 20 hours? No. But I can't get away with much less than 10, even after 45 years, where the text just doesn't take ownership of me. No power of my own. It's God's power. Dr. Kent Hughes is another fine preacher. He spent years at the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, He's more recently teaching for a couple of years at Westminster Seminary here in Philadelphia. Kent, in one of his books, describes an experience that every preacher ought to know something about. Here's what he said. There are times, he said, when I am preaching that I sense the pleasure of God. I usually become aware of it as an unnatural silence among the people. There's like a physically felt quiet, he said in which my words fly like arrows and I feel like I'm standing outside myself and someone else is speaking as the Holy Spirit fills my sails. He said, I sense God's pleasure and I get an awareness that something is happening to hearers that is entirely of God, not of me. I've experienced that. Not every Sunday, not every sermon. Remember the remark of Eric Little from the movie Chariots of Fire when he told his sister, God made me fast. He was a runner. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me a preacher. And when I preach, I feel his pleasure. That's why this is a sad day for me, to be separated from the task weekly that I've given myself to for 45 years. is a very hard thing to do. I will make no bones about it. But God wants me to do it because the old body just won't accept the discipline that it has to anymore. We think of this. You know, you can't learn it. You can't go to a book called Preaching ABC. It doesn't happen that way. It's something that God blesses as you work and study and pray Prayer is probably the biggest factor I haven't talked about. And you come down to it and you say, who is adequate to do this? The apostle actually asked that question out loud. Who is adequate to these things? Who can do this? You better know the answer is not you. And yet, God uses fools like me to speak through us. He spoke through a donkey once. I guess he could speak through me. The foolishness of preaching. This is the one 
to whom I will look, says the Lord in Isaiah, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. In my ordination service 45 years ago, I was challenged several things that have been on my mind the last few days. The man who was giving me a charge said this to me, and I've never forgotten it. He said, Michael, if the President of the United States ever calls you to offer you a seat on his cabinet or a seat on the Supreme Court, tell him, Mr. President, I'm sorry, I'm doing a greater work. I've been doing a greater work for 45 years. In my study at home, There's a framed saying, probably about six by nine, black frame under glass. Words of mine are there. They're words that I spoke in a sermon quite a few years ago, and one of you wrote them down and put it in this frame in calligraphy. What I said back then was this, being called to preach God's gospel of pure grace in Jesus Christ is the hardest the sweetest and the most privileged labor any man can undertake this side of seeing him face to face. I'm asking of you, will you, this congregation, each of you, pray every day in 2019 that Westminster's senior pastor, number four, will tremble under the burden of this calling and bring glory to God from this pulpit. My concluding word for you is not from 1 Corinthians, it's from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks, let it be as one who speaks the oracles of God by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, lay your hand on the man that you want to be here in months ahead. Lay your hand on your people that they would pray because their prayers, mysteriously, we don't know how or why, their prayers interact with your choice and your discernment for our committee to see the man. So, Father, may the preachers who inhabit this pulpit obey the little sign that's on the desk. Sir, we would see Jesus. Amen.